That was in 2008. That's the Big Ten championship for the 600-meter run. That's Heather Dorenden. She's running for the University of Minnesota. She's leading 400 meters into the 600-meter run. She falls, as you have just seen, and I would imagine in the moment of her fall, she has a glimmer of doubt, right? I mean, all of the hard work that she has put into preparation for this race, for this championship run, that you could imagine when she falls and she catches herself with the palms of her hands, that there's a temptation to just stay there on the track. But she doesn't. She doesn't. And she gets up, and as you see, as the announcers are cheering her own from, from uh, the broadcast booth there, there, there's just this tremendous excitement because after the fall, she realized that her fall wasn't final. After your fall, then what? After your fall, then what? Because all of us fall. I mean, the Bible is very clear that as the Apostle Paul is talking to the church at Rome, all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. That is not just us pre our justification. That's not just us pre the redemption of Jesus Christ, but that is us in our sanctification. That is us in the continued work of the Holy Spirit. We still fall. We, we still fall into pride, into prejudice, into anger, into gossip, into envy. There are none of us that are immune from what the anonymous writer of the book of Hebrews called the sins that so easily entangle us. There are times where we fall privately. There are times that we fall publicly. And those public falls oftentimes have public consequences. There, there are times that we fall and they are familial consequences for it. There are times that we fall that no one knows about, but all of us have to ask and answer the question after we fall. Then what? Abram fell last chapter. I mean, he loads up with his wife, the U-Haul. They're, they're leaving Ur, going to the place that God shows him. He comes to Canaan, and then there is a famine in the land. He is backed into a corner, so there they go to Egypt to sojourn. As they get to Egypt, Sarah's beauty is noticed by the princes of Pharaoh. So Abram says to his wife, don't let them know that you're my wife. Because if they know that you're my wife, then I don't have the ability to live through this. So tell them that I'm your brother. And so in that moment of being backed into a corner, Abram compromises the dignity, purity of his bride, and he falls. What hope do we have for Sarai as she's taken in to the palace chambers of the princes of Pharaoh? What hope do we have for the promises of God, which were to be land and to be lineage and to be blessings, as there they are in Egypt. There Sarai is captive to the whims and the wishes of of those that are there, but the Lord. But the Lord. The Lord intervened in Abram's faithlessness and he sent a plague and then we pick up the story after Abram's fall. Genesis chapter 13 verses 1 through 4, they read this way. So Abram went up from Egypt. He didn't stay there after the fall. He and his wife and all that they had and lot with him from the, into the Negev. 
Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar. Notice those three words, that phrase, at the first. Made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. What do you do after you fall? What do you do after you fall? Notice what Abram does. He, he seeks the Lord in prayer. Notice that he leaves Egypt and he goes back to the first place that he met the Lord in Genesis chapter 12 and he made an altar between Bethel and Ai. He makes an altar and I want you to hear that Satan, after your fall, he wants you to be isolated from worship. He, he wants you to believe the lie that your sin separates you from ever having intimacy with your Savior again. He wants you to wallow in your guilt, wallow in your shame, and to be defined by that moment of sin and not defined by the victory of your Savior. What Satan wants more than anything for you after your fall is to think the lie that God's love for me is dependent upon my performance. And when I do not perform adequately, his love is damned up and he does not extend his love to me. So oftentimes people isolate themselves from the community of faith. Oftentimes people quit praying. Oftentimes people do not worship. Oftentimes people remove themselves from a life group. Oftentimes they erect a scarlet letter on their forehead, not by anyone else's shaming, but by this internal sense of guilt and trying to pay a penance for your sins. You walk around thinking everybody sees me in my sin. After you fall, then what? Abram leaves Egypt and he goes back to the place where he first met God in worship between Bethel and Ai. This was his spiritual home base. This is a place in Genesis chapter 12 that he called out to the name of the Lord. And I'm here to ask you, what is your spiritual home base? Dawson. What is that place of significance? And it doesn't have to be necessarily this, this special place. It very well could be a couch in your home. It very well could be your back porch. It very well could be that morning walk. It very well could be the commute in your car. It very well may be your home church. It very well may be that place where God spoke to you in this place of intimacy and he moved in you. Notice what Abram does. He goes back to that place. That, that place needs to be consistent for us. You know, for me, it, it is oftentimes an early morning run where I'm able to, to hear from the Lord and to, to pray and to, to really uh, frame the day with God. I hope that you have, and if you do not have, I hope that you will find your, your place and destination between your Bethel and your Ai. Now, how does he make an altar to the Lord? What, what did that consist of? How did he worship? Was it through song? Was it through silence? Was it through the community? Was it by himself? We don't know, but as New Testament believers, we know that we seek the Lord first and foremost through confession. So after you fall, here's the great news of the New Testament, that if you confess your sins, 1 John 1, 9, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Confession for a believer should be specific and it should be consistent. 
Confession should be specific and it should be consistent. Martin Luther, the great 16th century German reformer, would say that at the end of each day, he would take the Ten Commandments and the Ten Commandments would be this rubric in which he would go back through the day confessing specifically and then regularly each day he would do this. I don't know what your practice of confession is, but we all are called to have a practice of confession. Why do we confess? I love the way that the wonderful writer Frederick Beekner says, confession is to confess your sins to God. Well, it's not to tell him anything that he doesn't already know. Until you confess them, however, they're an abyss between you and God. When you confess them, they become the bridge. Now, your identity does not change in unconfessed sin. Your status as a child of the Most High God does not change, but that intimacy, that fellowship, there's a distance. Confession is the bridge. Confession brings you back into intimacy with your Savior, intimacy where you're not quenching the Holy Spirit, but you're heeding the guidance of the Holy Spirit. How do you make an altar to the Lord? Well, you seek the Lord with confession, and you seek the Lord with repentance. Repentance is a word that oftentimes has has dropped out of our church vocabulary. That New Testament word, metanoia, which means literally to turn around. It is not just your work, but it is the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ in your heart, empowered by the Holy Spirit. So you turn from sin and you turn in a new obedience to your Savior. It is a turning, empowered by the Holy Spirit as you Volitionally, volitionally choose to turn from sin and to embrace the forgiveness of your Savior. Confession and repentance are two sides of the same coin. Oftentimes we have, I think, misunderstandings of repentance. We, we have an understanding of repentance that is instantaneous. That if we have a loved one who is walking down a road of sin... We want repentance in our loved one's lives to be dramatic and to be instantaneous. Now, notice in Abram's story, he leaves Egypt. But I assure you, it took some time for him to get out of Egypt. It took some time for the plague of the Lord to come upon Sarah. It took some time for him to come to his senses. It took some time for them to get back to Canaan. And so repentance isn't most often instantaneous, but it is the miraculous process over time. So this is the problem. We, our metaphors fail us when it comes to repentance. Because oftentimes we use a a simple metaphor of of traveling, walking. So I'm walking one way and I realize that I'm walking in the wrong direction. And so I repent. I what? I turn around. And that was easy, right? I'm out walking and then I turn. It doesn't take much effort. It doesn't take much thought. And so we think to our loved ones, you're walking in the wrong direction. Just turn around. Just turn what, what if we changed the metaphor? What if their life was, was more like a vehicle that they're driving out of control at 100 miles an hour going in the wrong direction on the interstate? 
And for them to turn around isn't just slamming on the brakes and making a U-turn on on 65 and going against traffic, but for them to turn around, for them to repent, first they must understand that they're going in the wrong direction. Secondly, they must slow down. Third, they must look for an exit. And fourthly, they've got to get out of the way to come back on the way. Now, that's a longer process. But yet the result of it is what? Turning around. Now, some people, they're not in a vehicle going 100 miles an hour in the wrong direction. They they have had years of helming an aircraft carrier of their own devising. And to turn that ship around takes what? Well, it takes a lot of time to slow that ship around. There's a tremendous amount of momentum going in the wrong direction. And and, uh, the Holy Spirit is inspiring them and equipping them. But the process of transformation and repentance is going to be that slow, slow, slowing down. And then to turn that ship around oftentimes takes time. So I, I, I want to encourage some of you in this room. Some of you are loving family members, co-workers who are living in a foreign land. Sometimes repentance takes time. Sometimes that the work of the Holy Spirit takes time in the heart of your loved one and do not lose heart. It is just the same Work of the Holy Spirit. When that loved one goes from 100 miles an hour in the wrong direction to 80 miles an hour in the wrong direction. See, we want instantaneous transformation, but oftentimes the real transformation of the heart that God is working is in the long-term view of your spouse or your children or your grandchildren or that neighbor or that friend or that person in your life group. Understand after the fall, what? Seek the Lord in prayer. How? Through confession, through repentance. But that's not the end of the story. What do we do after the fall? Well, secondly, we move forward refined by the experience. Notice that the Abram of the end of chapter 12 is very different than the Abram that we meet in chapter 13 here. There's been a refinement of his character because of the consequences of sin. Verse 5, Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For why? Their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was a strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Uh, The Canaanites, the Herzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me. And between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. It is not the whole land before you. Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Now notice that Abram has, because of his sinful decision, he's prospered. I mean, Pharaoh gave him all of these donkeys, all of these oxen, all of these servants. So he comes out of Ur, and he has a lot of possessions. He comes out of Egypt, he's got even more possessions. Now, this is an interesting case study in the health, wealth, and prosperity false gospel. Oftentimes, the way we frame possessions is this. 
that when you are living in God's will, you will prosper financially. You will prosper with health. We even say it sometimes when we see somebody and they're driving a a really nice vehicle. We would say, quote, unquote, man, they must be living right. They must be living right. Notice that when Abram is living right, it leads him to famine. When Abram is leaving, living wrongly, it leads him to prosperity. What does this mean? Well, our net worth is never a spiritual thermostat to gauge whether our relationship with God is cold or hot. You know people that have a lot that are spiritually healthy, and you know people that have a lot that are spiritually unhealthy, and you know people that have very little financial means that are spiritually healthy, and you know people that have very little financial means and are spiritually unhealthy. So the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, it is inverted in the story of Abram that we meet here. When he is out of God's will, he gets a lot. When he's in God's will, he is meeting division, and he has so much that Lot has to go one direction, and he's got to go another direction. Notice how they move forward. Verse 10, chapter 13. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered like the Garden of the Lord. Notice the allusion to the Garden of Eden. Not only the allusion to the Garden of Eden, but notice that just like Eve looked and she saw that the fruit was appealing and appetizing to her eyes, so Lot, in a a, a drawing forth from the reference of Genesis chapter 3, so Lot falls into that same temptation here. And like the land of Egypt... In the direction of Zoar, notice parenthetically in verse 10, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Notice that Abram takes the high road. He was backed into a corner in the last chapter. And how did he respond? With a selfish, sinful decision that ultimately threw his wife proverbially under the bus of compromise. And here, he's backed into a corner with Lot, and he chooses the high road. You choose. Now, Lot looks with his eyes, and his decision is going to be disastrous, and we're going to hear about that just next chapter. Notice here in verse 14, the Lord said to Abram, As Abram makes this decision, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of your earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will do what? I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent. And came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And what does he do? Again, he builds an altar to the Lord. What does he do? He worships God. And the last chapter, Abram and Sarai are in Egypt. There is a disastrous decision that has been made. God has promised them earlier in Genesis chapter 12, I'm going to give you land. Well, they're in Egypt. The threat of land is, the, the promise of land is threatened. 
Sarai is there with the princes of Pharaoh. So the lineage promise, it is threatened. So the promises of land and lineage, just a few, cha- a few verses in the original chapter where God has given this promise, they're all threatened. So you can imagine Abram thinking all is lost. You can imagine him thinking, well, I'm going to reap the consequences of my decisions here and the original promise that was given to me, it is null and void because of my decisions. But notice what God doesn't pause Abram in his faithlessness. That the story that God is writing in this patriarch's life, this imperfect follower of God, is one that is going to continue on even after Abram's fall. What does he do He reinstates, he reminds Abram, hey, I told you just a chapter ago, I'm going to give you land. Look up, look down, look to the side, and look to the side. All of this I'm giving you. Why? Because I promised you the land. Think about all of the descendants. And I know Abram's thinking about this. I've I've just really threatened the whole promise of lineage. And God once again says, your descendants are going to be far too numerous for you to even count. So all of the promises are threatened with Abram's faithlessness, but God doesn't pause his servant in the fall. And he doesn't for you either. You know, it's a part of being human, isn't it? To pause people. Do you know what I mean by that? To kind of summarize people with a conversation that you've had. I mean, we're finite human beings, and, but we've got to make judgments about people. So you'll hear somebody say, my son-in-law is. And then they'll describe something that happened 10 years ago or 20 years ago that has forever paused the character of their son-in-law in a moment. Or they'll say, my boss is. And they will take, maybe it's very generous or maybe it's very stingy, but there's a way in human nature that we want to sum up people by an account of, of our observation. And we want to be the infinite God who has all of the wisdom to be able to say, my son-in-law, my daughter-in-law, my mother-in-law, my wife, my husband, my son, my daughter, my co-worker, my boss, the person that sits next to me in life group, they are fill in the blank. And oftentimes, we pause people in some of their worst moments. But I'm here to tell you that God doesn't pause you in your worst moment, in your worst decision, in your worst sinful act of spiritual infidelity, that when you fall, there is more race to run. So you, child of the Most High God, loving a prodigal that is in a foreign land, or maybe you are the prodigal that has never left your pew this morning, but spiritually you're in a foreign land. I am here to tell you that in and through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he does not pause you in your worst thought, your worst moment, your worst mistake, but even when you fall, there is more race to run. Will you seek the Lord in confession and repentance? And will you run the race that he continues to have before you, refined by what you learned, even in the scrapes of life? Let us pray.
God, we pause and we just say thank you. Because it is the temptation for all of us in this room, in our human nature, to pause people. For our estimation to become institutionalized in our mind that 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 person is this moment, that that person is this mistake, that that person is that conversation. But we thank you that through the grace of God that you do not pause us in our worst moments, you do not pause us in the falls of our life, but in and through the blood of Jesus Christ, we are able to hear you whispering to us even when we have fallen and we are, uh, we're on the track of life. Despairing that we don't wanna run anymore. We don't have the strength anymore. We're too embarrassed by the scrapes and the mistakes. And you whisper to us, child of God I love you too much to leave you to leave you in the fall may we hear you not just whispering but shouting encouragement to us empowered by the Holy Spirit to stand as you have given us the strength to and to run the race in front of us seeking you in confession, seeking you in repentance, refined by the experiences of our life. It's in your name we pray. Amen.